We're, we're in a series called God Stories, and thank you so much for sending me your stories. Uh, keep sending them, by the way. If you go on the website up in the right-hand corner, there's three little bars. Click those bars, and the menu will drop down, and you'll see, uh, you'll see uh, your story matters. Every story matters, exactly how we say it on there. Every story matters, and, and it does, because your story is a God story. Your story is a God story. And, I've, the more, and what's been fun about preaching this series this summer is I keep remembering more God stories in my own life that I've, I'd kind of forgotten about. I remember just, just as I was sitting over there, I was remembering when Sherry and I first started pastoring in Westfield, Massachusetts in 1980, uh, uh, 1981. And we were staying in the church in like a Sunday school room in the church. And uh, we were riding around looking for a place to live. And uh, we see this house. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Westfield, Westfield State College area. And uh, the, West, uh, the uh, Stanley Park is a very, very well-known park. And it's some, uh, full of award-winning roses. And it's just, I don't know, hundreds of acres. Beautiful place. And on the front of the house, in front of the park, there was this brick house, a really nice brick house. And everybody knows Sherry. You know, she just, she just is um, a great person of faith. I mean, her faith is just way beyond mine. Always was and always will be. She just has so much faith and so much courage. And so we, when she sees this house, she says, I want to look at that house. And, of course, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I think we were making about 200 bucks a week or something like that. <laughs> you know, first of all, if, if, if it's empty, we ain't getting it, you know. And so we pull up, and, and it's, it looks empty. So we go around looking at all the windows. We see it's in just beautiful hardwood floors, and it's right on the park property, right? So uh, I said, well, we can never afford it anyway. She said, Sherry said, you, everybody know what Sherry said? I'm going to pray. <laughs> That's what she always said, I'm going to pray. So I kind of forgot about it a, a week or so later, we're at this pastor's meeting in Springfield, Massachusetts, and we're sitting across from this couple that we just met. They were on staff at another church, and um, we get to know them where they are, and you know, you know, you finally find out, what do you do, and uh, they're on staff at church. She said, well, but I work also, I work for Stanley Home Products. Stanley Home Products is in Westfield, I guess they're still there, and they own Stanley, Stanley Park. And they run it, right? And Sherry goes, well, you know that house? Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. yeah from, I'll, I'll go check into it. She goes and talks to the CEO of the company. And that house belonged to Stanley Beverage built the company, Stanley Home Products. That house was the house his mother lived in. And it was empty. And Sherry said, if it's empty, ask him if he'd be willing to rent it. And I, I, get a, uh, I get a call from them, and the CEO wants to hear from me about that house. And so I wrote him a letter, and that was back before email and all that stuff. And, and so I wrote him a letter, explained to him our interest in the house. And he, he gets back to me, he said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'd, we'd, be, rent, we'd be willing to rent that to you. And we think, the, the best, we think a fair price is $350 a month. So <laughs> we moved into this. Jay was born, we lived in the house. So we this beautiful brick house, hard, hardwood floors, beautiful gardens. They cut the grass, they weeded the garden, and they, and they did the snow plowing. <laughs> I don't know, you say coincidence. Well, the more I pray, the more coincidences I have. 
So today, now we, we, we talked, uh, the, uh, now we're in a kind of a sub-series in the series, and it's how to increase divine coincidences. We know they're not coincidences, but we'll call them that. And uh, we figured out that, that God's stories often seen as coincidences, but when we look closer, they're not coincidences, they're divine coincidences, they're, 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 they're God appearing in our life, which of course, uh, they're not coincidences. And uh, what we found out was, first of all, that, that these, these God stories or these uh, God happenings, they don't just happen. It's things that don't just happen. They may never happen again exactly that same way. We, we didn't find the formula for renting uh, beautiful homes for $350 a month. We did not find the formula for that. So it's maybe something that may never happen again. And thirdly, it's things we're supposed to remember and re-examine and repeat. The Bible says that we're to tell them to our children. Our children are to hear our God stories. And uh, so we're in week three of increasing divine coincidences. In the first weeks, we said, number one, look for God in your suffering and stress. Because God always shows up where there's stress. I'm living in a, we're living in a Sunday school room in a church and uh, drafty and cold winds blowing in. It was not a, not a great living situation. We, we, didn't, we didn't know you were supposed to be unhappy or complain in those days. And we still don't complain and, and act all unhappy all the time, no matter what we, we do. But, uh, but anyway, it was, just, it was a little stressful, I guess. So st- stress, it, it, your, your stress points are your, are your God opportunities in your life. And the second thing we talked about was to increase your divine coincidences, increase the times that God will show up in your life, is to start living in the service of others. Start living in the service of others. As you live in the service of others, you will make demands on the power of God. You will create situations of need. The, uh, the Philippians, because they lived in the service of others, they gave to Apostle Paul and, other, and the poor saints in Jerusalem, they gave so much money that they were in need. And, 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 and I bet you've never, and I'm, I don't, that, that sounded, I'm about to sound condescending, I'm sorry. You probably have never thought to put Philippians 4 where God says, I will supply all your needs according, to, God will supply all your needs according to his riches of Christ's glory. Uh, 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 you probably never put that in context. But you know the context? His people had given to the point that they were now poor. And that's the people to whom God said, or Paul said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And uh, so, so start living in the service of others. Now today we want to examine number three. Cleansing your heart of toxic attitudes that are keeping you from experiencing God. Keeping you from seeing God. It, this is so important. Mike Sutton has given me a great uh, a God story on this one. And let me share it with you now. Um, <clears throat> the Suttons are not here today. They're traveling. But he gave me permission to read it to you. Joanne and I spent two weeks on a small island in the Caribbean. By the way, Mike is our security director here at the church. You know, Joanne... Uh, works in our crisis center, and she does a, a abortion recovery uh, class and does all kinds of... She's a great person. They're both great people. So let me read it. Joanne and I spent two weeks on a small island in the Caribbean several years ago, and I brought along a Bible study on patience, something I always struggle with. A definition of patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay. 
trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. And every bit of that definition applied to me. Not just the part about tolerating delay, trouble, or suffering upset me because I feel I should be able to fix whatever is wrong. As a Christian, this becomes an even bigger problem when it's God telling me to wait or to trust Him for the solution. I needed this study because I needed to learn to trust God more and my impatient nature was getting in the way of that. Now what what I want you to focus on in his story is he's chosen to grapple with one of his toxic attitudes. He's chosen to contend with something that he knew was toxic. Now, you may be here today, and you don't know what's toxic in you, but there's a bunch of people in your family that are dying to tell you. So, so just ask them, and they will tell you exactly what you need to be working on. At the end of our vacation, a hurricane hit the island. On the last morning, we checked out, out, out of our cottage and made our way to the small airport, only to find it was closed due to the storm. We returned to our cottage, but they had no accommodations available. We went to the island's small marina, the only place we knew had rooms to rent. It was then that we learned our credit card had been turned off due to what we would later learn was fraudulent activity in Iowa. We had no cell service on the island. The clerk let us use her phone so that we could contact our credit card company so we could pay, our, pay for our stay. We went to our room as the storm continued to pound the island. I got online and learned that our JetBlue flight in Florida had taken off as scheduled. Whenever we got off the island, we no longer had tickets to go home. I admit, I felt like I was not in control of much that was happening. However, I briefly paused and thanked God. I realized that even with all that went wrong, we were safe. I felt like God had this. I felt like God had this. A short time later, I fell asleep on the bed. Now, this is important. First of all, I'm not a napper, even in the best of circumstances. I just don't do it. The few times I've napped, I wasn't fun to be around when I woke. Asked my wife. I should have been too angry or worried to sleep with all that had happened that morning, but there I was peacefully napping. My wife noticed immediately, so did I. God really got my attention that day. The next morning... We flew on a 12-seat prop plane to Fort Lauderdale, not knowing exactly how we're going to get home. We told our sad story to the JetBlue employee who stopped what he was doing and personally put us on a flight home that just had two seats left. Less than an hour before it was scheduled to take off. We never bought new tickets. Trying to remember why I ever worried as much as I did. I told this story at my community group, and Quentin Matson said that the storm and all the issues related to it was the final exam for the Bible study I had completed. <laughs> and he added, you passed. I asked what would have happened if I hadn't passed. He said, you would just have to take the course again. <laughs> After the storm had passed, we witnessed the sunset, and he showed me a picture, but I, I was not able to download it. Uh, I thank God was just showing off at that point. It's an gorgeous sunset that he saw as they took off. I'll never forget this event in my life, but I often use this picture of that sunset as wallpaper on my computer as an extra reminder of how big and how good our God is. Amen? Now, I would never say that God only shows up when my heart is perfect aligned with him and when my attitude is right and my spirit is strong. 
However, we're talking about increasing those divine coincidences. Is there any doubt that we don't see God more often and clearer when we've cleansed our souls, are contended with cynicism, rage, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, contempt, and of course impatience. When I'm, when I'm graciously gracious and cheerful, I can see God more clearly. I, I'm convinced that, A, God shows up more often when my heart is right, and I can see him better when my mind is at rest. Many years ago, uh, in fact, it was back in Westfield a long, long time ago, I found myself in some pretty deep emotional trouble. I found myself feeling pretty toxic. Long story short, I ended up in a counselor's office in um, uh, Akron, Ohio. And uh, I, I'll never forget the counselor told me a story. He, he, he said to me, he said, Phil, Life is not about what happens to you, but it's about the story you tell yourself about what happens to you. He, uh, I, I was reminded of a story of a, a baseball umpire, a very colorful umpire, umpire named Bill Clem, who uh, w- was known for being very, uh, in, very uh, interesting, I guess is what he said. And one day a pitcher pitched the ball, and Bill was very slow in giving him the call. And finally, the pitcher in exasperation, he said, well, Bill, what is it? And Bill said, it ain't nothing till I call it something. <laughs> and, and I remember that counselor told me, he said, he told an example of, a, of an uncle. He was an American Indian, and, and he was talking about this uh, uncle of his who took him out to tell him about maintaining calm emotions and how it helped you to see clearly and he said, he said, my uncle told me to lay down in the grass and tell me what I saw. I looked down, and I laid down in the grass, and I saw bugs, and I saw different things. And I got up and told him what I saw. And he slapped me right in the face. And my eyes filled with tears. He said, now lay down in the grass and tell me what you see. He laid down and said, I don't see anything. My eyes are full. You just slapped me. And he told me, he said, Phil, you will never see clearly through strong emotions. You have to let God calm you down in order to see clearly. You think you see clearly, but you're seeing through rage. You're seeing through resentment. You're seeing through cynicism. You're seeing through impatience. And so you do not see life properly. The Bible says it this way. I'm going to give you one verse today. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's interesting. You ever thought about that verse in this context? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who cleanse their soul of toxic emotions. Now, number one, we're natural and sinful before we're spiritual and godly. You need to understand that. We don't, we don't get to genetically, psychologically, and sociologically put ourselves together. We arrive genetically and in part psychologically and sociologically formed. And then these uh, people that are called parental units, who in most cases are still figuring out themselves, are given the task of taking us out of the box and completing the assembly. When we arrive at these early stages of physical maturity, we have all these ways of being that we're not even sure of their origin or how they got there. You, you've not decided, you did not decide what kind of person you were going to be. 
You didn't decide whether you were going to be a patient person or an impatient person. You didn't decide whether you would be a person who would easily forgive or very, find it very difficult to forgive. You didn't decide whether you were going to be a negative person or a positive person. Genetics and life created. By the time you reached biological maturity, you were something and you wondered, what am I? Who am I? How did I get here? And what am I going to do with this? That's the human condition. First of all, there's natural and biological formation. I don't think we've even scratched the surface of how our brains are formed to give us different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses. Psalms 139, 13, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We're just beginning to understand the mysteries of the human brain. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Alex Honnold's uh, some time ago, Elise and I were out in uh, Phoenix, Arizona when I took her to college and we went to watch the movie Free Solo. How many of you have seen the movie Free Solo? You didn't have the courage, did you? Um, uh, Alex Honnold is the greatest free solo climber in the world. Do you know what a free solo climber is? That's someone who climbs, scales mountains and, and mountain faces without any ropes. And El Capitan in Yosemite National Park is the, the most daunting uh, uh, granite uh, rock stone face, how, I'm not saying it properly, but you know what I mean, in the world. And he was the first person to ever climb El Capitan without ropes. It took him three and a half hours. And so, uh, Neuroscientists were very, very, uh, very interested in Alex Honnold, what his brain might look like. And I think we got a, there's a picture of him. <laughs> um, now, I'm not trying to say that the formation of his brain was entirely what he was born with or how it was shaped over his life. I don't know the answer to that. But I've got a, a neuroscientist right here, so maybe you could tell me. Uh, but uh, the, the, have you seen the, the results of this brain imagery of Alex Hanna? Yeah, you can look it up now. Uh, we, we all have, uh, we, we have, those of you in the sciences, you can know better than me, you have this uh, little organ in the center of your brain called the amygdala, and the amygdala is, is, registers emotions in, like fear and, and, and anger and things like that. It, it, it's where you get the fight, fright, or flight uh, impulse from the amygdala, that little. And so uh, th th they, they put him inside of an MRI machine and they put together the 10 most horrific images that they could imagine. In fact, they were so, they were so horrific that uh, the uh, neuroscientist, the woman, uh, Jane Joseph, the woman who was a neuroscientist, could not bear to look at the images because it upset her too much. And she... So they had him look at 200 images that were flashing by like that. His amygdala didn't even light up. It didn't even register any disgust or fear or excitement at these horrific images. I mean, like one image is, uh, is of, a, uh, of a body cut up in little pieces. And he didn't even register any emotion. I'm not saying he was just born that way. I don't know about the nature versus nurture argument. I'm not trying to solve it. 
But I'm telling you, the one reason he can climb a mountain with no ropes has to do with how he's wired. And I ain't wired that way. (laughs) There's also nurture in sociological formation. Maybe his parents threw him off the roof. I don't know. I remember I remember Sherry and I's first argument. It was uh, at, at our second marriage because we got married in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Then we drove to Tampa, Florida, and got married again for the church down there where I was on staff. And I remember our, I remember well our first disagreement. It was lunchtime, and at lunchtime I eat lunch. I don't care if I'm working. I'm going to stop working and eat lunch. How many of you like that? That's the way I was raised. You you work, and then it's time to eat lunch. You eat lunch, and you go back to work. Well, if you know know my father-in-law, who's back there today, Quentin Manson, you know that he will not stop for lunch if he's in a project. And guess what? Sherry thought I was... An abnormal person. We were in Tampa. I'll never forget it. Because I wanted to go to Burger King and have lunch before the wedding an hour or two later. And I found out what an abnormal um, uh, I I don't remember all the terminology that was used. I don't think it was lazy. But certainly certainly I needed to toughen up. So, that's why marriage is interesting. You you think it's just two people coming together? No. (laughs) It's two countries coming together. (laughs) Two cultures. Right? There's sinfulness, though. In in spite of all of that, too, we're we're sinners. We have a sinful and fallen nature. Paul said in Romans 7, 14, The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. So I am not the one doing it. It is sin living in, in me that does it. And then we jump over to 1 John 1, 18. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Perhaps a better term than cleansing of toxic attitudes is contending. Contending with toxic attitudes. Some we're able to cleanse ourselves of. Some we contend with for our lifetimes. How many of you can relate to that? You contend with it for your lifetime. You contend with something that you know is not perfectly pleasing to God. You know it gets you into trouble. And, and you can see it coming. You can say, I'm about to say something that I know when I say it, it's going to get me in trouble, but I've got to say it. <laughs> I think a key to winning this battle is being able to stand outside of yourself. It's called self-awareness. And the Bible calls it self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And I'm, I'm concerned today that a philosophy is permeating the world that, that's making it almost immoral to resist any inner um, motivations or urges or desires when the scripture 
is filled with information that tells us that we have, we have entered into a struggle. A struggle not against others, but a struggle with our own hearts. A struggle with our own feelings. A struggle with our own emotions, our own way of seeing things. So, perhaps a better word is contending, since we deal with these things. You don't get to, but you don't get to your, choose your own specific burden of being. You, 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 you do get to choose whether or not you will contend with yourself or simply leave that up to everybody else. <laughs> you, won't, you won't like the results if you choose to do the latter. If you're really courageous the next time the family is around, say, <laughs> you know, I really want to be a better, kinder, more helpful person. Do you all have any suggestions? <laughs> if, you, if you're really courageous, try that. <laughs> Secondly, we don't get to choose our natures, but we do get to choose our attitudes. I just uh, listened, read, aren't those synonymous terms? You listen to a book or you read it. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. How many of you have ever read that book? Oh, you got to read that book. That's one of the most important books ever written, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Spent three years in a Nazi concentration camp. Four different camps. His mother, his mother, his father, his brother, and his wife all died in the camps. He survived. And he came out of it, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning and created something called logotherapy, which is a, a psychotherapy or a, a, a psychology, a psych, psychological therapy approach that's probably one of the best ones in the world. And here's what Viktor Frankl said. He said... Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way, the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude. Now, I could easily give you 25 or 30 verses uh, to prove that point, but let me give you only three. Philippians 2, 5. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And being found in appearance of man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, what's an attitude? An attitude is all about a way of looking at life. Most of us either, uh, or a lot of us, don't either, we either don't want to cleanse ourselves of toxic attitudes or we spend all our time trying to change everybody else's attitude, everybody else's actions. Jesus, you know what Jesus did? Jesus adjusted his attitude to his new circumstances of being a human. He was suddenly thrust into this environment, where one where he was God's son, where, where he was God's favor, living in the favor of his father, to one where he would be resisted and hated. And he did things that changed the world, but he didn't spend all his time trying to change the world. But he adjusted himself to the attitudes around him Because life is truly, as I said earlier, not about what happens to you, but about the story you tell yourself about what God is doing in your life. Some some stories will make it nearly impossible to see God, and therefore having a God story 
will, will make all the difference in the world for you. Some stories invite God to show up in all his power and others don't. Uh, I, I remember, here, here's an example. I, I know I'm not being really clear. I, I made some bad decisions one time that cost us financially a great deal and, and other, in other ways, a very costly situation. And I remember, uh, this was about 1986, and I remember riding down the road with my brother, who's the eternal optimist, and I was complaining to him about what I had, the mistake I had made and, and how bad I felt and how I was really beating myself. And Joe goes, wait a minute. Think about this, Phil. People spend tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars even, to get an education, to get a degree. Why don't you just consider this the cost of your education? <laughs> and man, it... It, it snapped me out of it like that. In fact, that, that, that same frustration that led to that, those decisions has come up to me many, many times. Many Monday mornings. <laughs> Only maybe a pastor would understand that. <laughs> Every time I get in that state, I remember, what I, I remember what I did, the decisions I made that put my family in a tough situation, and I remember what my brother said, and I say, thank you, God, for my education. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> because my brother helped me to tell myself the right story. Viktor Frankl, back to him, here's what he told the men. And this is amazing. When you read the book, it's very hard to read because you read of the horrible things that were being done to these people in, this Nazi in the Nazi concentration camps he was in. But here's what he said to the men around him. This wasn't something he said afterward. This is something he said while he was in the situation. He said, it does not really matter what we expect from life, but rather what life expects from us. I don't know about you, but I just think that's profound. We need to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life. Life ultimately means taking responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the task which it constantly sets for each individual. I think, I think a mistake, and one of the reasons we're seeing a resistance to capitalism right now, is we bought into the idea that free markets and capitalism and the American way of life was going to bring us to the place that, the, that, that the, the goal was to no longer have struggle. In fact, uh, John Maynard Keynes, who, who created macroeconomics, that's what he actually said in some of his writings, that his belief, as we continue, he wrote this 100 years ago, his belief that 100 years from, the, from, from now, if capitalism and macroeconomics worked like he believed they would, Americans would be able to, instead of spending all their time working and striving and struggling, would be able to spend all their time at the theater, in art, in leisure. That would be, oh man, somebody should have stopped him right there because that's not what brings happiness in life, is going to the theater. Struggle is part of what brings joy and meaning to life. 
having things to contend with, having goals, having things that get you up in the morning and maybe even keep you up late at night. That's what makes life what it is. And we should never want a system of being that will, that will make it so we can stop working. No, no. The Apostle Paul talks about the greater glory he would see because of his trials. And the Bible says that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame because of the glory that was set before him. Um, I'm talking about being able to contend with your own worry, doubt, fear, anxiety, bitterness, resentment, and deal with it in such a way that God becomes clear. And I have this wonderful story of someone that probably hardly any of you know this young man. But he wrote his God story. He sent it to me back in March. And um, I called him up on the phone because he lives down in uh, the Springfield, Mass. area now. And I called him up on the phone to confirm everything and say, you know, and he gave me permission to share it with you. And I want you to listen for the shift that happened in his attitude Thankfully for uh, our people to Blessing Barn. Well, it was called, the, the, you'll see, it's the Blessing House, which we used to have a store down in downtown Milford called the Blessing House, but the same thing. And, um, and, and let me read it to you. I grew up in an atheist household. His name is Jacob O'Connell, by the way. Maybe you know him. Under tumultuous circumstances, neglect and unresolved trauma manifested as behavioral issues. Behavioral issues became misconduct in school resulting in probation as a teenager. I saw these as directionless events, but when I showed up for the community service at what used to be the Blessing House in Milford, something inside me woke up. The staff there, this was actually, I asked him who told him. He said, Christy told me this one day. He said, the staff there told me that God was doing massive things in my life and asked that I give church a try. Encourage me to accept Jesus for all that he is. I began attending BCC and taking my faith seriously. But a few months later, I was catapulted into foster care and away from the church setting. Much has happened since then. I've served in the army, worked countless jobs, and traveled to many places. I never thought I would visit. The words that were spoken to me never quite left my heart. God is moving in your life. He sure is. I'm now pursuing a degree in Christian studies with an emphasis on global ministry. I lead a Bible study once a week and work on a ministry team in Chicopee. I am blessed to walk with God and have fully leaned into his grace. He provides. I'm not perfect, but I'm able to grow better with him at the center of my life. I will never forget the impact BCC had on me when I was younger. God used this church and its ministry to set me on a beautiful path he laid out. Thank you, and praise be to him. Now, I understand, and I'm really grateful for Christy and the other staff at Blessing House. Brandy Gaudet was down there at that time. They played an enormous role in seeing God for him. But also, Jacob, in spite of this tumultuous home life, decided to embrace a different story. He decided to embrace his God story, and it changed his life. It'll change your life, too. Some of you need this this morning. 
the adversary is against you. So let me close with this. Stop fighting the wrong battles and focusing on the wrong adversaries. For our, uh, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, wrote, For still our ancient foe to seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Paul said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Paul also says a couple of chapters later, don't sin by letting anger control you. And don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. See, this morning the adversary wants your world to grow dark. What Paul is showing us is that Satan separates us from God, obscures our vision of God, and even will have you living a life without any more God stories. If he can just get you, listen to me, if he can just get you to be consumed with anxiety, obsessed with rejection, filled with resentment, or blind with rage, we even unwittingly acknowledge this with our language, you know. We say, you're driving me crazy. <laughs> this is killing me. I can't stand it anymore. I've had it up to here. Think about that last statement. You're acknowledging that you're filled with toxic emotion. You're also acknowledging that you are not filled with peace, love, joy, and the grace of God. You can't be up to here with anxiety or rage or resentment and be up to here with the grace and spirit of God. You cannot. You can only be, that's why the Bible says, be filled with the spirit. It's not just joking. It's not just, you know, imagery. It's not just some, some philosophical, ideological idea. Be filled, be filled with the Spirit is to actually be filled with the emotions of God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Turn your eyes on Jesus, the song says. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You can choose anxiety or grace. You can choose rejection or grace. You can choose resentment or grace. You can choose rage or grace. You can choose the narrative of the adversary or you can choose grace. The narrative of the adversary will always lead you to more pain. Grace will always lead you to more God stories. And you can have as much of God as you want. In fact, you already do. Let's stand. I just feel led this morning to ask you if you're contending or maybe you're not contending but you have, you recognize in this sermon that a toxic attitude is being is, is, is arisen in your heart. Something that's robbing you of peace. Robbing you of power. Robbing you of clear vision. 
robbing you of the ability to see God in your circumstances. But right now, you would be willing. You'd be willing to give that up to God if, if I would give you the opportunity. You'd be willing to say, God, God, I will either contend with it if that's your will, or I will let you supernaturally take it away. Either path that you choose, I will contend, contend or cleanse. God, I give that to you. How many of you would just, um, we're not going to ask you what it is or anything. How many of you just slip up a hand and say, yes, yes, I got, something's presenting itself in my life that it's, I know is toxic. It's going to, hold that, keep a hand up for just a second. I want to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you will move in the people's hearts. That person who's lifting up deep resentment and that resentment may have all the justification in the world but it's being used by the adversary right now to rob those people of joy and peace and contentment and it's robbing them of perhaps the greatest God story they would ever have if they would just see that you're working all things out for their good and I pray for that person who's filled with anxiety trying in their own way to get control of things that humans can't control. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would whisper sweet peace to that individual and let them let go. Right now, in the name of Jesus, let go of the levers of control and give control over to Jesus. I pray for that person whose heart is filled with sadness and grief and negativity right now that you would Speak a word of encouragement into them right now. We believe in Jesus' name. Amen.